Allstate wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere, like at your pregame barbecue. While you prep your meats, that grease trap you forgot to empty is prepping to smoke your porch, garage, and the car inside. And without the right home and auto insurance coverage, the cost to repair this could eat up your savings. So bundle home and auto with Allstate to save and get protected from mayhem like this. Bundled savings variant are not available in every state. Coverage is subject to policy terms and conditions. We are welcoming a new show to iHeart and the DraftKings YouTube channel. It is called Point Game with John Wall and CJ Toledano. It's an insider's look at the NBA and the culture surrounding the league. Every week, the five-time All-Star and the number one pick in the 2010 NBA draft, John Wall will give his unique perspective on the hottest topics in the league and tell the best behind-the-scenes stories from his time in the NBA. So check out Point Game with John Wall and CJ Toledano on the iHeartRadio app, the DraftKings YouTube channel, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yeah, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. The volume. In the NBA, the game can change in an instant, but no matter how the action unfolds, DraftKings Sportsbook has your back. This week, new customers can score 150 instantly in bonus bets just for betting five bucks on basketball. Win or lose, you get an instant dub. They even have great same-game parlays. So many different ways to bet the NBA. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now and use code HOOPS. That's H-O-O-P-S. New customers can get 150 instantly in bonus bets for betting just $5 on basketball, only on DraftKings Sportsbook with code HOOPS. The crown is yours. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. In New York, call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY to 467-369. In West Virginia, visit www.1800gambler.net. Please play responsibly. In Connecticut, help is available for problem gambling. Call 888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org. On behalf of Boot Hill Casino and Resort in Kansas, must be 21 or older in most eligible states, but age varies by jurisdiction. See DraftKings.com sportsbook for details and state-specific responsible gambling resources. Eligibility and deposit restrictions apply. Bonus bets expire 168 hours after issuance. Terms at sportsbook.draftkings.com slash basketball terms. All right, welcome to Hoops Tonight here at The Volume. Happy Friday, everybody. I hope all of you guys had an incredible week. We have very special guests today, Carson Breber and Logan Camden from the Nerd Sesh. You guys have uh, probably seen these guys come on the show. They went on a few times last year. Carson's been on a few more times than that. I've been on their show a few times. But I'm very, very excited. We're going to be breaking down everything from yesterday as well as the in-season tournament championship game, which is going to be tomorrow. And then two other questions from around the league having to do with the Pelicans and the Warriors. But before we get started, what's up, guys? Please tell everybody about your new YouTube channel where they can find you. I want to make sure because you guys, just like what I just went through about a month ago, you guys are launching a new channel. I want to help uh, get that off the ground as best as we can. Tell everybody where to find your stuff. 
Yeah. So as you said, we have our own YouTube page now. If you just look up Nerd Sesh, should be the first result. As you mentioned, Jason, we just had you on to our show last week, which was super great. So you can check that out. We've got a new trivia show up today. We're doing some in-depth video essay, in-depth breakdowns of some specific NBA players. We've got one up about a guy who we're going to talk about today, Tyrese Halliburton. So all of that is at the Nerd Sesh page. Yeah, to put it simply... I enjoy talking basketball with these guys because they both know the game and they put in the work and they know all, they they do a much better job covering uh, some of the more off the beaten path uh, NBA topics too than I do. I highly recommend you guys go check them out. Um, but let's get to last night. So LeBron, obviously, 30 points on 12 shots, four for four from three, eight assists, zero turnovers. First player in NBA history to put up a 35 and five in less than 23 minutes, which is an absolutely insane stat. I would say that on a per minute basis, that was one of the most dominant games of his career as he literally snatched the soul of the New Orleans Pelicans for the world to see for the season. Now, 25 points, eight rebounds, seven assists, 65% true shooting his highest true shooting percentage since 2014, the second highest of his career. 2.2 2.2 stocks per game. That's 30th in the NBA. Not nothing. Lakers are 21.2 points per 100 possessions better with him on the floor versus off, according to Cleaning the Glass. His jump shot's been deadly. 1.1 points per jump shot. 1.24 points per catch-and-shoot jump shot, in particular where he's been red hot. He's one of only two players in the NBA to have attempted at least seven shots per game in the restricted area and he shoot, and shoot over 70% on them. It's him and Giannis. 36 players this year have ran at least 200 pick and rolls, including passes. His 1.09 points per possession ranks seventh out of those 36 players, despite some pretty bad off-ball shooting. He's also second in total fourth quarter points scored this year and fifth in total clutch points scored this year. The Lakers have been the third best clutch team in the league by win percentage as well. I say all that to ask this. Does LeBron deserve to be in the MVP conversation? I would not put him in the upper echelons of this conversation just because I think you have to look at a the Lakers are not among the elite regular season teams at this point. I think that they have the potential to get there, especially if they hit on a midseason trade. But this is a team whose effort can wax and wane. And that applies to LeBron as well. I think that when he is dialed in. This is the best LeBron that we have seen since 2020 when he was the best player on the planet, pretty indisputably, and the best player on a title team. Now, I would say that he has no argument for the best player in the world title anymore. He is not that level of player. But when you consider some of the health issues that he's endured, where we haven't seen him maybe this explosively athletic, especially if you look at the playoff run last year, when he was really hampered by the foot injury, when he was struggling with the jumper, when he wasn't able to impose himself offensively as consistently as we're used to from him, there's no question that this is unimproved and a wildly impressive LeBron. So to me, it's not so much about him really pushing for that MVP nod. I think that there are guys who just night to night are putting forth such massive efforts and are so responsible for carrying their team singularly to being elite. If it's Nikola Jokic, if it's Joel Embiid, what's so encouraging to me about this is that when he picks his spots, this LeBron looks so unbelievable. It is the most efficient LeBron we have ever seen. You read a lot of those great stats off, Jason. He is shooting his career best percentage on twos and on threes now. 
you have this unbelievable combination of him having a career jump shooting season, and we saw it in this game. It was a shot-making clinic. You have the stretch where he pulls the back-to-back -back logo threes, just obscene. You have not long after that, the really tough runner and one, like just incredible skilled shot-making combined with an ability to attack mismatches and to really pick on the easy stuff so efficiently and that's another thing that stood out from this game when you put up numbers like this in 23 minutes on the floor yes you have to shoot the ball really well as he did but hunting the easy stuff starting from his first back basket of the day where he just gets that post seal and it's an easy layup you have a smart cut from him in this game he's getting out in transition repeatedly like he is doing such a good job of maximizing his advantages without having to put excessive stress on his body and then situationally you see it in the efficiency you mentioned the fourth quarter numbers he's eight and a half points per game there on 59 percent shooting this is an unbelievable version of LeBron who is just putting forth, to me, by far the most impressive demonstration of longevity, not just in NBA history. I would argue in sports history, if you try to make the cross sports comparisons, Brady plays until he's 45, but that's a position that is so mm -hmm. much less dependent on athleticism. LeBron is still a top tier athlete in the NBA today. And we see that every night whenever he wants to show it. That's never happened from a guy who was knocking on the door of 39. When you think about the dudes who could still put up 20 plus at this age, it's Kareem who had this unbelievable size advantage and then this great skilled shot making. It's Carl Malone who was this post machine. You've never seen a guy with this sort of explosiveness. There's still probably fewer than a handful of guys who are better all around athletes than LeBron in the NBA today. And that is so encouraging for the Lakers ceiling because we saw in the playoff run last year. They need him to carry a pretty heavy burden if this team wants to be really good offensively. They certainly need him to be better than he was in that run last year when he was hampered. And I think there is every sign right now that he is capable of doing that. And considering what a large question mark that was coming into the season, Carson, it has to be encouraging for the Lakers ceiling. I think there is one more aspect of why I wouldn't have LeBron in the upper echelon MVP conversation, and that's because he does have Anthony Davis, and I don't want to undersell how imperative Anthony Davis is to this team winning basketball games and what he does on the defensive side of the ball and how great he has been uh, over the last 10 games. You know, LeBron is dominating, and it is remarkable. I've never seen anything like this from a guy, from an athlete his age, but uh, 80s 24-14-3 on 61% true shooting over the last 10 games. He's been good defensively. Um and so I think that plays against LeBron's MVP case. But like you said, I think it is uh, why it's really encouraging about this Lakers team moving forward towards playoff time. AD rounding into form, LeBron rounding into form. Guys are shooting better. D'Lo, Tari, and Prince, uh, and LeBron all over 40% from deep over the last 10. That's, you know, withstanding a Reeves, uh, you know, bad shooting stretch. And this team is clicking a lot more uh, defensively. I have loved the energy and the effort of these last couple of games. And again, you don't want to give them too much credit because the Lakers, we know they can uh, – it's a flip of a coin on what you're going to get that day. But I have liked their energy and effort uh, with Vanderbilt back. It seems like all the pieces are coming together, and the biggest variable in all this was LeBron and AD. I don't know, man. I, I don't know about you guys, but with this version of LeBron and this version of Anthony Davis, I mean, it does feel like we're on the cusp of a potential playoff run, right? We'll get there. We'll get there. I do. I do want to. I, I want to get. I want to dive into the Lakers here in just a minute. I will say that I agree with you guys that I don't think LeBron is in the upper echelon of the MVP conversation. I let, let me put it this way: I think he's good enough right now that mm -hmm. if he if he went for it, he'd have a an outside chance mm -hmm. of getting it. 
Like, yeah. because let's just put it simply. You can tell that there have been about a third of the games this year where he's like, I- I'm going to go after it tonight. <laughs> and yeah. like, and in those games, he's looked like the best player in the world in those games. Like, at least I shouldn't say like definitively, but he's been at that level. Like he's been he has been contributing to winning at an at at a high MVP level during those third of the games where he's he's cared. And it's very clear this week. He's like, I'm winning these games. You know what I mean? But there but there's a lot of chill mode going on. And, And for the record, I think that's smart. Like. I think LeBron going for the MVP this year would be absolutely stupid. Like yeah. just an incredible waste of resources. One, like just from the standpoint of the voters, he's got a very small chance of actually getting it just because of all the fatigue, the Anthony Davis element, Laker, anti-Laker bias. Like I thought LeBron was clearly the MVP in 2020 and he didn't get it. And so like at, at the end of the day, like it, it's just not worth it. It, it. But that said, I think in terms of like his individual ceiling, this is the best I've seen him look since 2020. Like, like he just the efficiency, the jump shot, the playmaking, the like, like, and and even with when it comes to the scoring volume, it mostly has to do with the fact that he's attempting the fewest number of shots in his entire career, Mm -hmm. and because he's on you know half to two thirds of the nights kind of in chill mode, like I'm just I, I feel really confident now from that specific spot, the LeBron spot, that in big moments LeBron can turn it up and hit that top tier superstar level, providing he doesn't get hurt at some point this season, and that simply was not there last year. No, like he he just wasn't that good last year. No, I mean there was maybe two games in that playoff run where you saw him totally dial in. It was Game Six against the Warriors, and it was Game Four against the Nuggets—a closeout spot and a do-or-die spot where it is just I am going to make the most of my physical advantages every possession, and I am going to fully exert myself for 48 minutes. And you saw just this unbelievable ability to bruise guys in the post to attack with such efficiency and transition, but. I mean, over the totality of that playoff run, LeBron wasn't a top 10 player in the league. I mean, right. Mm. He definitely had a positive defensive impact. It was great to see him dial in there. But offensively, he was overly reliant on the jumper. I mean, he was an average efficiency, 25 point per game scorer who wasn't dictating offense with the same level of playmaking brilliance that we're used to from him. And I think we can attribute a lot of that now that we see how he looks revitalized and healthy to that foot injury. I don't it's know both. if there's I think it's the, I think, I think it's the it foot is. injury and I think he got in the lab this summer. I think it's both. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. But I wasn't sure exactly how much of a role that played, right? I didn't know if he could get back to this level and now that he has I don't know if there's a handful of guys who I would rather have than him in a single game do or die scenario just because I know how dominant he can be dictating the game. We don't see LeBron running 15 pick and rolls a game anymore, but I do believe that if it came down to an elimination game, he could and he could be absolutely masterful there. And you combine that with the jump shooting at this level, all the efficient stuff he's able to do off ball and in transition. I mean, this is like a terrifyingly good basketball player at almost 39 years old. It's unbelievable. And it is vital, vital to the Lakers ceiling this year. Mm-hmm. And yeah, like, go ahead, Logan. Oh, sorry. Just, I just wanted to mention just the defense too, man. When LeBron's been engaged defensively, he's been one of the best defensive players on the planet this season. Yeah, is he's he is has always been an extremely gifted low man. If when he when he actually cares to do the job, uh, which again, as in terms of the the actual distribution of his resources, makes sense to me. But like, mm-hmm. there's been like five or six games this year, like that Suns game where it's been the fourth quarter and it's like, 
every time down the floor, I'm getting a bucket or I'm setting a guy up for a wide open shot. Like where it's like that, yeah. that like top, top tier perimeter initiator, half court surgeon thing. And that just was not there last year. And, mm-hmm. and I think that, I think that is, it has, again, we framed this as MVP conversation. We're all on the same page that he's not going to win it, that he's not really all that high up on that list. But just the fact that he at, has been able to reach that level is more important than any trade, more important than anything else having to do with the Lakers this season. Now, on the Lakers, since their 3-5 and five start, which again, it is important to mention that their high-motor athletes were all out with injuries, which was a significant hindrance to what the team was capable of achieving. Last 15 games, 11-4, second-best record in the league over that span, second-best defensive rating in the league over that span, and again, 15 games, that's two-thirds of the games we've played so far. Sixth in defensive rebound percentage over that span. They had a rough stretch there at the mm-hmm. beginning last night where they were really struggling to box out. Uh, the Pelicans were doing a good job crashing out of the weak side corner and catching them sleeping. But for the most part, they've cleaned up that issue, which was a big problem earlier in the season. The offense is bad, but there are three stats that I think are encouraging. One, they have a 115.3 offensive rating with LeBron on the floor. That would be the 11th best in the NBA. <clears throat> Um, if you actually kind of branch that out to the big picture, 118 offensive rating in clutch situations. They've never mm. had issues scoring in the clutch for the most part. Uh, and then 119 offensive rating this week in big high leverage situations. I also think it's worth mentioning that they, I don't think the Lakers are a good shooting team, but they're not as bad as they've shown so far mm-hmm. this year either. I think that's important to mention. Uh, after last night, they have nine wins against 500 or better teams, which is tied with the Boston Celtics for the most in the league. The Lakers are now plus 1,500 to win the title, which is the sixth best odds in the league. Philly and Phoenix are ahead of them. Phoenix is plus 700. So Vegas is viewing Phoenix as a substantial better title favorite than the Lakers. Are the Lakers now the best value bet to win the title this year? Let's start with you, Logan. Yeah, it kind of seems like it. I've... I've been back and forth on that. I've been having that internal debate this entire time, Suns-Lakers, and the nail in the coffin for me probably was the head-to-head matchup that we saw between the two. Now, granted, we have not seen the Phoenix Suns yet with Bradley Beal. We still not, we still need to see what that team looks like at full health with all their superstars, and I still think that could be the difference maker, but the Suns played really sloppy, and again, when the Lakers were engaged in that first half, they completely shut down that offense. Again, they are without Bradley Beal, but it was really sloppy. They forced a ton of turnovers. They were really active physically, and they disappeared in the second half a little bit. They kind of do their Lakers things, but I think I do prefer the Lakers more, and I still think that they're, I do think they're the best value bet probably to win the finals right now. Preseason, I said the Lakers were my pick to win the title, and Like you guys have laid out in this segment, I think that a lot of the key components of this run are coming together really slowly. You say this isn't a good shooting team, Jason. A lot of guys are up near 40% over the last 15. It's not about them being a great, reliable shooting team this entire season. It's about them being hot and creating open looks at the right time. I trust these guys to make shots come playoff time. The one outlier is probably D'Lo shooting like 46% from deep over the last 15, but Hopefully Logan, that continues. Logan, he he won't be here when we get there. Okay? <laughs> very true. Very true. <laughs> but a lot of the love, things are I love d by the way. I'm not trying to slander him. Go ahead. The, the shooting, the defense, LeBron and Anthony Davis hitting their peaks again. Uh, that's my biggest question, and I, I want to see where your guys' gauge is on this. If LeBron can keep up this level come playoff time, if he can give you 36 minutes of this at this level – 
does Anthony Davis need to reach a higher level offensively than what we've seen this year for them to win the title? If they want to win the title, I think a lot of things have to go right. As currently constructed, mm -hmm. I still don't think that they have that sort of ceiling. As Jason hinted at, as we talked about when we had you on our show last week, Jason, we are in unanimous agreement that something needs to be done about the current backcourt mm -hmm. configuration so they can get rid of some of the more redundant traits that you have with D'Lo and Reeves. Reeves is a better basketball player. He's less prone to shooting you in the foot with those stretches where he's just making bad decisions offensively, et cetera, et cetera. Until they figure those things out, I do not believe this Lakers team can win the title just because I think the Denver Nuggets are mm -hmm. that overwhelmingly good, presuming that they are at health. Now, I do think that Anthony Davis needs to be more consistently imposing offensively than what we saw last year in the playoffs if they want to make a run that deep. But to Jason's question, I think that there's a strong case to be made. First of all, I'm just not in love with these odds in general. The Clippers uh, are plus 1,800 and the Timberwolves are plus 2,500. I just don't know what could possibly indicate that the Clippers are a better team, even in a playoff setting, than Minnesota. I think Minnesota makes a real strong case to be my second favorite out West. They're just so dominant defensively. And I think they have a good formula offensively. If Ant reaches that superstar level and cat pulls his way, just a really good basketball team. But I definitely like the Lakers more than the Suns. And I think it's a brutal matchup specifically for Phoenix, because how do you lose a game where you shoot 50% from the field and 48% from three and the other team shoots 40% on twos and 30% from three, as we just saw happen earlier this week. The Suns were the team that shot the hell out of the ball. The Lakers really struggled to make shots. It's when the other team has overwhelming physical advantages. Now, the Suns turn the ball over too much, but the Lakers also dominated. They were plus 13 on the offensive boards. And I think that you saw, again, a very dialed-in LeBron there who can basically mismatch Hunt with anyone on the floor. It is just so easy. He can go at Nurk so easily out of pick and roll. He can run pick and roll actions with Austin Reeves and get Grayson Allen switched onto him. And there's really nobody one-on-one. -on -one. KD is far too slight. Eric Gordon's just too short and small who can do anything. And getting back Bradley Beal does nothing to help them with that problem. I also think AD is a problematic matchup. So I believe that the Lakers' physical advantages there and their two-way ceiling are just too great when LeBron is playing at this level, and I do believe that in big-time situations, they can produce good offense because of that for me to believe in Phoenix over them. So I still viewed the Lakers as a legitimately flawed team in a way that the Bucks, the Celtics, the Nuggets just are not. But after that, I do really believe in their ceiling. I do like them more than the Suns. So there's a case to be made. So, yeah, I'm so annoyed by some of the discourse coming out of that Suns-Lakers game on Tuesday because I thought the Lakers were so clearly the better team. Mm -hmm. Like, the amount of stuff that had to break right for Phoenix to even have a chance to win that game. The bizarre stretch where Darvin Ham leads, leaves LeBron and Anthony Davis both off the floor in the first half while Devin Booker and Kevin Durant were on the floor, mm -hmm. which ended in a 5-0 run that took about 15 seconds before Darvin Ham realized his mistake and called a timeout to the Lakers coming out of the halftime locker room sleepwalking and giving up a 14-0 run that kind of <laughs> turned it into a game. Uh, Anthony Davis literally missed 11 shots in the restricted area in that game, including wow. five in the fourth quarter. And for the most part, if you look at like, if you know how those uh, Carson, you know, these graphs uh, um, on synergy where you kind of see the bar graph having to do with yeah, the, yeah. The, the lead. 
Uh-huh. It was all purple. The Lakers had the lead the entire game, basically, outside of a couple of brief stretches. And so, again, like I, I like had the Suns won that game, they would have gotten away with murder, in my opinion, because mm-hmm. I thought the Lakers were clearly better. I don't really see that as a matchup. Now, I think I disagree with the framing of what you said, Carson, from the standpoint of like, I don't think as currently constructed, they can't win the title. I just think they're clearly a tier two contender, really? meaning like, meaning like, Things would have to go right. Like they'd need to get excellent shooting out of Cam Reddish. They'd have to get LeBron at this level for the entire playoff run. They'd have to get, you know, Nikola Jokic to have Nikola Jokic and Jamal Murray in particular to shoot. Like I would say that like the, the Nuggets also shot well last year. If they shot at their norm and the Lakers shot above their norm, they might have an outside chance in a six or seven game series to steal it. But the Nuggets would be a clear favorite, in my opinion, like a substantial favorite. Like you would expect mm-hmm. them to win the series, but I'd give the Lakers a puncher's chance. I also disagree that uh, that uh, with the way you portrayed the Bucks as a team without a flaw, I think the Bucks and the Lakers are both. They're both in that. Say, I think it's like Nuggets, Celtics, small gap, Lakers, Bucks, Timberwolves, small gap. Then we get to the Suns and the and the Warriors based on whatever potential trade they could make, which we'll talk about them in a little bit. Now, as far as the Lakers go on the trade front. I, I, that's obviously the direction they're going to go. They're, they're, they once again this week in the Suns game had to leave both Rui Hachimura and D'Angelo Russell on the bench in closing time, which is just a bad use of resources. So like they're going to make some sort of move to upgrade those positions. I, I think if they nail that trade, like if they do get a Jeremy Grant, if they do get a Lori Markinen, if they do get a Pascal Siakam, if they do if like if they nail that trade and somehow jump in there and swoop in and steal one of those guys, I think they enter the same tier as the Denver Nuggets. Uh, but I don't think it would make them a favorite over the Nuggets either. I I just think I think it's important to recognize like this team as currently constructed with LeBron playing at a much higher level than he was last year and more wing depth makes them a little bit more of a puncher's chance favorite than they were last year, but I still view them as a clear tier two. Now, Carson, you look like you want to call me an idiot, so let's get started on no, that. No, 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 I don't. <laughs> well, first off, I just wanted to clarify, the Bucks absolutely do have a weakness. Their point of attack defense, we've talked about it, has to be addressed in some way. You cannot trot out a backcourt of Dame and Malik Beasley if you want to win the title. I just think they have some more overwhelming advantages. I think their offensive ceiling is so high. I do think that they have more top-end talent. So that's why I put them in a bit of a different tier. It's really tough for me to envision this Lakers team as currently constructed beating the Nuggets. What I was going to ask you is, like, would it require an injury to a Nuggets starter? Or you think healthy with some shooting variants going their way, with LeBron playing his best, this Lakers team can beat the Nuggets in a seven-game series? Because that's pretty hard for me to see. Well, again, a much less a much less version of LeBron la- last year with sure. significantly less wing depth was in all four of those games. And specifically, the Lakers have been a much, much better clutch team on mm-hmm. both ends of the floor this year than last year. Now, again, I want to be clear, like I, I, I'm saying that there's a puncher's chance. Like if, yeah, sure. if, if, if Jokic doesn't shoot 47% from three or whatever he shot in that series, and if Jamal Murray doesn't play literally like a, like Jamal Murray's best series was the Lakers series. He was incredible in that series. And so like, if some of those things break differently, I think the Lakers could end up in a game five in Denver two two 
close game fourth quarter. LeBron gets hot. They steal it. Then they go home and play this wildly good defensive game in game six and they win. Like I, this, this kind of thing does happen. Like some, like the, the, the seven game series thing does in, in the majority of situations lead to the best team winning, mm-hmm. but it also does. It, there are versions of it where it goes another way. And so again, I just, I would give them a puncher's chance, but I think that's the extent of our disagreement there. I think we both agree that the Lakers will make a trade. And honestly, mm-hmm. it's just, it's just not even worth really looking at their all t- their actual ceiling and potential until we get to that point. We are welcoming a new show to iHeart and the DraftKings YouTube channel. It is called Point Game with John Wall and CJ Toledano. It is an insider's look at the NBA and the culture surrounding the league. Every week, the five-time All-Star and number one pick in the 2010 NBA Draft, John Wall will give his unique perspective on the hottest topics in the league and tell the best behind-the-scenes stories from his time in the NBA. CJ will bring his A-list comedian buddies to keep it light and fire off some hoops takes. Plus, John will be inviting current and former NBA players, friends, and teammates to join the show as well to give their unfiltered accounts of what really goes on in the league from a player's perspective. So check out Point Game with John Wall and CJ Toledano on the iHeartRadio app, the DraftKings YouTube channel, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Probiotics aren't a trend anymore. They're a mainstay in the health and wellness aisle of your favorite store. And Nature's Way Women's Probiotic Pearls are the easiest way to introduce a probiotic into your routine. I mean, they're just what they sound like. Adorable little pearls that couldn't be easier to take. But they still pack that probiotic punch. Each tiny pearl has one billion active cultures and protect against occasional bloating, constipation, and digestive discomfort. And they actually support both digestive and vaginal health, so that's a win-win. And according to my little fact sheet here, they're designed with a triple-layer coating that protects each pearl from stomach acid, so they can make it all the way to your small intestine where they're needed most. You probably didn't think we'd be talking about the small intestine today, did you? Well, digestive health is kind of important. If you know, you know. To learn more about Nature's Way women's probiotic pearls and how they can fit into your routine, visit naturesway.com. Hey, it's Danielle, Will, and Ryder from Pod Meets World. Thanks to our friends at Hyundai, we were able to record a very special episode for you guys at the one and only, wait for it, Boy Meets, Meets World House. House. Take a listen. We are lucky to be sitting with Alan and Amy Matthews in the flesh, William, Rusty Russ, and Betsy Randall. Yay! Thank you. Thank you. When, yes. those, when those legends get here, let me know. <laughs> <laughs> you're here. You're here already. No. Uh, we didn't either when we were watching yeah, this that's day. The that's we the didn't problem. realize it until we uh, oh. started getting into seasons three and four, and now we're like, oh my God. You were both so good on the show, and we missed it because we were we young. We were kids and, and so self-involved. Egomaniacs. Yeah. And <laughs> didn't realize well, no, how great you were. We've talked about it. I think you just assumed everybody was as good as them. And, right. and then right. you get into, right. as you grow up and you work with other actors, you realize how oh. lucky we were yeah. to have you guys. This has been brought to you by the fully electric Hyundai Ionic 5. New episode out now. You can listen wherever you get your podcasts. I do want to move just because we've gone for a while now. <laughs> I do want to I, I do want to move on to the Pacers. So um, Tyrese Halliburton, 499 pick and rolls and ISOs this year, mm. leading to 629 points. 1.26 points per possession. That's the best self-creator in the league this year. Um 36 players have run at least 200 pick and rolls. The one we talked about with LeBron where he finished at seventh. 
He's first on that list, a full seven points per 100 possessions ahead of second place, which was Devin Booker. That's completely ridiculous. A Tyrese Halliburton jumper this year has been worth 1.29 points. A uh, catch-and-shoot jumper from Tyrese has been worth 1.41 points. Pull-ups, 1.26. There doesn't seem to be a coverage that works against him. We we saw, uh, first of all, completely picked apart the Celtics. Then yesterday... He torched the the Bucks in their high drop coverage. He torched the Bucks when they went with a low drop coverage. He torched the Bucks when they went to uh, to a switching scheme. He uh, uh, obviously there was only a handful of possessions against the zone, but they didn't have any trouble scoring against the zone as well. Getting the ball to the middle of the floor to Bruce Brown, there just was nothing they could do with the guy. And I mean, they had a one twenty offensive rating against that Boston Celtics team, which has been the second defense, second best defense in the league this year. I so I did a, a rant in my show yesterday where I said that I believe Tyrese Halliburton is on, he's the next in that like group of guys that is, you know, truly has the potential to, to, to be a Pantheon type of player. To me, he's Steve Nash with more athleticism and in a little bit better size. He legitimately, in my opinion, if he stays healthy and makes the moderate improvements on the margins and on the defensive end, I think he has the potential to be an all time. Great. Do you guys agree with me? Let's start with Carson. Yeah, I think that if we are looking at the guys who are, let's say, under 25 in the league today, he's in the top five who you want to build around. You have to have Luka. I think you have to have Wemby. And then I think that I would probably go Ant, Tyrese, and then Chet Holmgren. Shout out Chet. I think he is like a perfect modern center. But Tyrese is unbelievable. And you read off some of the just mind-blowing stats about his production this year. I've got some more that I will now recite. The Pacers are 3.4 points ahead in terms of offensive rating of the number two offense in the NBA right now. That would be the widest margin between the number one offense in the league and the number two offense since 1982. And Tyrese is propelling that unit inarguably without another all-star level talent, which is a very rare thing to lead. First of all, a convincing number one offense, but there's only really two other instances this century of one superstar offensive talent carrying a group without another all-star level guy to the number one offense. It's the 2020 Mavs, Luka doing that in his second season with just a collection of good shooters and solid rim finishers, just unbelievable control of the game, lethal scoring and playmaking threat. And then it's the 2006 Mavs, with Dirk Nowitzki. Outside of that, there's some other teams that only had one all-star, but there's clearly multiple all-star talents, right? It's the 2018 Rockets who had Chris Paul who wasn't an all-star, stuff like that. So he's in rarefied air in terms of the singular impact that he is having, propelling an elite team offense without star-level talent. Now, he has very good complementary talents, right? He has guys who are very good in transition, which is fundamental to their identity and a great strength of his, and he has awesome spot-up shooters. So he's got good play finishers, but he is manufacturing so much of the offense here. Really, really impressive historically. If you look at his individual production and efficiency, nobody has ever averaged 25 points and 12 assists per game in NBA history, period, point blank. Ali is doing that right now on plus 9.8% true shooting versus league average. Nobody has ever averaged 12 assists per game with fewer than two and a half turnovers per game. Hallie's doing that right now. The only other player ever to shoot 44% from three on eight and a half attempts per game is 2016 Steph Curry. We are simultaneously (laughs) seeing one of the all-time great jump shooting seasons, one of the all-time great playmaking seasons, and one of the all-time great 
seasons in terms of amplifying team offense. It is unbelievable. I think he is inarguably a top sh two shooter in basketball right now. Nobody other than Steph is able to blend this volume, both on and off ball with this lethal efficiency. He shoots 44% on pull-up threes. And then I think he's at like 48% off the catch. Just disgusting. And I think that as a playmaker, you see this incredible ability to amplify his teammates to really create advantages while also limiting mistakes. And often people will say that a sign of really low turnovers probably means that a guy isn't being creative enough as a playmaker, that he isn't taking enough risks, that he isn't trying to fit enough of those passes into tight gaps or maybe hit a hit ahead pass and transition and he just slightly overshoots it. You should be aggressive creating advantages. And if that leads to a couple more turnovers, that's okay. I think Hallie's in a really healthy blend where, yeah, he's not... Jokic audacious. He's not Magic Johnson audacious. He's not Luka audacious, but he is an aggressive passer who's just never stupid. He's almost <laughs> never inaccurate. I mean, he's just unbelievable. His decision-making is basically flawless. And Jason, you're so right about him against every coverage. Pick and roll his ability to manipulate defenders, to move them with his eyes, to open up whatever passing angle he wants. Incredible. He can make every pass out of those actions. When teams try to trap him, he is so composed, so effective in dissecting those actions, not just getting the ball out. I think about that game where he was just torching the Hawks, like the ultimate offensive uh, game this season where they both were up in the 150s. And they start trapping him at half court. And he is making the best possible pass on the floor. Obi Toppin is open in the dunker spot, 40 feet away. He's trapped. He rises up and just fires that pass in there. It's so, so rare. And when you combine that with the takeover scoring that he does have because of this unbelievable pull-up shooting, because, I mean, he is a big ball handler and he is lethal from floater range. And he's a pretty, pretty good athlete. You see it with a couple of the adjustments around the rim and the rim finishing yesterday. And then he is, to me, the most aware transition playmaker in the NBA today. And that's like the final element when people make the Steve Nash comparisons. And I'm like, yeah, it's really there. It is the just masterful pick and roll decision making combined with this unbelievable pull-up shooting that will always make you a more lethal score than the raw numbers indicate. And Hallie's putting up some big raw numbers right now. But, I mean, his efficiency is so mind-blowing because he is always going to try to amplify that attention, uh, or I should say weaponize that attention to amplify his teammates first. And then it is that pushing the pace, that awareness of, all right, well, I've got a guy who's outrunning the defense down the floor right now. Boom, hit ahead pass. So many guys don't see those opportunities at the level that Hallie does. He gets you a couple free buckets like that every game. I mean, he is a sensational, generational sort of one-man offense, and uh, everything that he's doing right now is absolutely legit. I don't see any coverage or any player who can slow him down individually because he is such a complete offensive player, and I don't see a team that can slow down this Pacers offense. Now, their defense is another issue entirely, as is Howley's, but offensively, he is a bona fide superstar. Yeah, I don't have a ton to uh, add. Carson did a phenomenal breakdown uh, on our YouTube channel of Tyrese Halliburton, if you guys want to check it out. Uh, I want to contextualize some of those numbers that you throw out uh, that make Halley uh, historically great, Carson. Only six players have ever averaged 12 assists per game in a single season. Kevin Johnson, Magic Johnson, Kevin Porter, John Stockton, Isaiah Thomas, and now Halley. I'd say pretty good company. You mentioned how efficient he's been. He's the third most efficient 25-point-per-game season of all time, behind last year's Kevin Durant, 2018 Steph Curry. Again, I'd say that's pretty good company. Carson, you mentioned it's the first ever 25-12 season in NBA history. Only 15 players have ever averaged 20 and 10 in a single season. It's it's super remarkable. And it is 
just as much to do with his playmaking as it is the unstoppable scoring. He's 72% in the paint, non-restricted area. He's 53% on short mid-range attempts, the 43% on long mid-range attempts. And the only aspect I think you didn't hit on is him in big moments this season. We have now seen him in two massive games on the biggest stage of this very young season on the in-season tournament against Boston. Not only carve them up and dissect them, the entire game, playmaking and scoring, on the biggest stage, on the biggest part of the game, he said, I'm going to put up a pull-up three because I'm that great of a shooter and I'm going to wet it because I'm that guy. And he does. And he knocks off the Boston Celtics. And then in another big-time clutch moment, knocks down another crucial pull-up jumper to knock off the Bucks, who we are considering to be the two best teams in the Eastern Conference. I just think that's another aspect, too. Mm-hmm. He didn't blink. In a big-time moment, you know, we have these issues with Jason Tatum in the clutch, right, with what he does offensively. Allie doesn't have these issues, right? He just said, I'm going to do it because I'm that guy. I'm going to take that shot. And I'm going to make it. Uh, it's the totality of it, and I do. I think he's got the potential – I think we're already seeing it. I mean, he's one of the best offensive players on the planet right now, and to overlook that is just wrong to him. But that's the final component to me is the clutch gene that we've seen from Halley. Some guys do fear the moment. Some guys do shy away. Halley's not one of those guys, and like you mentioned, whatever you throw at him, he's got a counter. If you want to shut this down, he's going to get a bucket this way. It's it's very different in the way he does it to Nikola Jokic, but you know that unstoppable, that un that inevitable feeling that you get from him, I kind of also get that from Halley a little bit, man. Yeah, he straight up alpha dogs Jason Tatum and Damian yep. Lillard and Giannis in the same week in high leverage situations. Big dogged him. Big like, dogged just, him. Just straight up alpha dogged him and talked shit while doing it. Like, it just, just it was completely ridiculous. I think he reminds me of Jokic in the sense that it's like there is no tenable defensive strategy. If you play him mm-hmm. to be a scorer, he's going to beat you well over a point and a point, you know, one point two points per possession. If you play him to be a passer, he's going to beat you to the tune of one point two points per possession. Like it's yeah, unique combination. To your list, Carson, real quick before we move on. Yeah, you had mentioned four guys. I we had this conversation last week or two weeks ago. I think it was last week, two weeks ago. Who, who knows? Um, <laughs> I, I I'm I'm going to switch Halliburton and Ant. I I understand I, all the things I said about Ant are true. This is not a bad Ant take. This is a pro Halliburton take. Mm-hmm. I think he I think he has all time great offensive player written all over him, and I think that to me that makes him a better big picture prospect than Ant. Just. Just by going over the top of him, not by ant dropping in any way, shape, or form. Luke is interesting because I would never say that that Halliburton's better than Luca. Not just because their fans are crazy and they would murder me alive, but at the, uh, but at the, but at the same time, like I do think there's something to be said in the big picture about the potential that Halliburton has to be better than Luca, and it comes down to two things in my opinion. He's so much faster and has good length, which I think will give him the ability to be a better defender in the big picture than Luca can ever be just because of his lack of foot speed. And then two, I think Tyrus Halliburton plays a way more likable brand of basketball. Oh yeah, and I think in and I think in general, uh, like because he plays with pace, like Tyrese is heliocentric, but. He's heliocentric with a quick trigger to get rid of the ball, not mm-hmm. just in transition situations, but in half court situations. And I think the the methodical Luka Doncic thing, there are certain types of players who thrive in that specific types of play finishers, but there are other types of players who struggle in that environment. And we've seen that over the years. And so 
while I think Luke is a better player than Tyrese Halliburton right now, and obviously his physical imposition offensively as like a matchup attacker is a is an important element to factor in there. But I think Tyrese has the potential to be a better player than Luca in the long run. I think he legitimately has that potential. And then and then the Wemby piece, it's like he's an alien. So I don't even know how you know it, like how do you even do a basketball breakdown of that? Like it's right. ridiculous, right? So the Lakers open up as a four point five point favorite over the Pacers tomorrow. Pacers have a 110.5 defensive rating over the last two games. I thought they played basically outside of the third quarter yesterday, an excellent defensive game. Honestly, though, I'll be honest, like Dame got red hot with his pull-up three in that third quarter. And honestly, mm-hmm. if it wasn't for Dame's red hot shooting, that probably would have been a 15-point win for the the Pacers. I thought they outplayed him for the most part through, during the game. No, the Celtics have been... I think that when the Lakers are this version, I think they're a better defense than the Celtics. I think you guys would probably agree with me in terms of their actual top tier when they're really locked in. That said, the Celtics are an excellent defense and they have excellent perimeter defenders and excellent help defenders. And they hung a 120 offensive rating on the Celtics this week. I want to get... Let's start with this. I want to have you guys lead with your pick of who's going to win. But then I want you to give your take for what you think is going to happen when Indy is on offense in tomorrow's game. Start with your pick, though. Let's go with Logan. Uh, I've been going back and forth on this game, man. It's tough because I don't know if we're going to get four consistent Lakers quarters. That's kind of the dilemma, right? I'm going to take the Lakers, uh, but... I really do think it's how they deal with the offense. And, uh, you know, these teams do play very fast. The Pacers are first in pace. The Lakers are eighth. Uh, I think that's going to be interesting. And I think it's going to be interesting to see if the Lakers can just keep up. And what I mean by that is some of the guys, some of the things you guys note about Halliburton, how quick he plays in transition, taking advantage of opportunities that he sees. If they're there, if there's any lapses in Lakers defensive coverage, Halley's going to find it if it's quick and fast. So I think, The Lakers' rotations need to be crisp. They need to be quick. They need to be timely. And the Lakers off, I mean, excuse me, the Pacers' offense is really, really good in the actions that they run too, like backdoors off pin downs and how they open up, Uh, how they move the center, right? There's a huge burden on Anthony Davis, I think, in this game uh, to dominate. And he's as game breaking a defensive weapon as they come, right? So, I think they can run a ton of pick and roll. They run the eighth most in basketball. The Pacers do it. The second most efficient mark in the NBA. And AD is going to be tasked with switching out to the perimeter on Turner, uh, holding Halliburton in check in the mid-range and on the interior. Uh, and he's going to have to be disruptive, getting into passing lanes. It's a huge it's a huge ask of this Lakers defense, who, again, has been playing great over these past couple of games, uh, to check all their boxes. It's just hard covering all of what Indiana does, man. The pick and pops yeah. that are open, the in-between game with Halley. Um, there's going to be a burden on the point of attack defenders to not overplay defense versus Halliburton and to not concede open looks. It's just going to be tough. But I think the one advantage that I will give to the Lakers is something that you guys mentioned early, and that's physical imposition. And I still think that the Lakers physically match up well with this team where LeBron's going to be able to dominate offensive matchups, right? You talk about Halley and some of these other smaller defenders here. I would be setting screens for LeBron and AD all game, just trying to get a switch on Halley, Bruce Brown. You know, Neesmith's a great defender too, but these guys should just physically overwhelm Indiana. And so that's where I give the Lakers the edge. Uh, On the glass, physically on offense. And I just think on a big stage, Tyrese has stepped up his game because it's the in-season tournament, but there's something about 
Like you mentioned, Carson, this is a one-game format. LeBron has really cranked it up in the in-season tournament, and I think this means something to him. Yeah, I think this is a point of pride for him, and I'm not picking against LeBron in a one-game scenario here. And again, I just think the Lakers have physical advantages that they can impose over Indiana. It's not going to be easy. I think this is going to be a game that comes down to the wire, as have all the in-season games. But at the end of the day, I like the Lakers' physical advantages, and I'm <laughs> I'm just not going to pick against the King, man. He's been he's been too great. I think we view this very similarly with the level that LeBron is playing at, and with how much he clearly cares. This is not a team that is in position to make him uncomfortable. They don't have big enough, strong enough, athletic enough wings. Like I do really like. Aaron Neesmith, but it's mm -hmm. a very favorable matchup for LeBron, I think, and he's playing at this level regardless. I do worry about the Lakers just matching the consistently prolific Indiana offense because we've seen nobody can stop that offense, and there are some specific things about this matchup that concern me. You mentioned it, Logan. This is a team that we, we have seen in terms of the Lakers be as inconsistent with their effort as any good team in basketball. And this is a team you have to be dialed against because they are mm -hmm. going to play so fast, be so opportunistic in transition. They have lethal shooters everywhere, so you have to be sharp with every rotation. You do mention AD is the best defensive player alive, but this is a very complete offense. And any one rim protector is not going to be at their most valuable in this matchup, I just think, because of the lethal pick-and-pop big that is Miles Turner and because of the shooting all around. Now, AD is unique because of how well he plays in space and all that. I just don't know that you can really slow down this Pacers offense, but I still think the physical advantages, LeBron playing at this level, if the Lakers have an off-shooting night, which they have had plenty of this season, it's sort of tough to see a path to where they win this game, and they just had a great shooting night against the Pelicans. But if they have a solid shooting night with LeBron at this level, I do think they can win a lot of matchups against Indiana offensively to offset how good that Pacers offense is. And I would lean towards LeBron and the Lakers with how he and they are playing right now. Yeah, I think Indy can win this game. And when I say can, I mean very much can. Like, would yeah. not even be surprised. But I think picking against LeBron in this game is a is is a terrible idea. <laughs> like, just, like, <laughs> yeah. like he just he just wants it. Like, probably more than everyone else out there. And and specifically, they don't have any bodies that can match up to him. Which we'll get to the Lakers on offense in a minute. I want I wanted to. This is kind of the way I see the game going. First of all, Indiana, uh, Indiana offense is going to look to push a lot in transition. The Lakers are a much better transition defense this year than they were last year. They've basically abandoned the offensive glass to get everybody back on defense this year, which has been kind of their counter to that. And they've been... I, last I checked, like they were in the like in the eleven twelve area for uh, for uh, transition defense, according to cleaning the glass, which, again, that's going to be something that in just in general, in terms of focus, they're going to have to be really sharp on. Mm -hmm. I expect Darvin Ham to start with Cam Reddish on Tyrese Halliburton and basically mm -hmm. apply a ton of ball pressure. And then I expect him to play an aggressive ball screen coverage with Anthony Davis on Miles Turner to start up at the level of the screen. And then he's going to put LeBron on Obi Toppin and basically use him as a roamer and try to mm -hmm. blow up plays there. I think they're going to concede whenever he goes to it. Although if they are aggressive enough, they might be able to force him to roll. But I think they're going to concede the pick and pop to Miles Turner to start the game. And if he doesn't make it, that could be a huge swing factor in this game yeah. if he misses two and starts to get a little hesitant. But that that's kind of the way I see them, them starting. 
The interesting thing that I'd like to see them do at some point during the game is put Anthony Davis on Obi Toppin and then basically put LeBron James on Miles Turner and switch Mm. the Halliburton pick and roll. And then essentially tell LeBron or Rui or whoever it is that ends up on the, in that switch to just basically press up on Tyrese and make him drive into help. Mm-hmm. And then they have Anthony Davis waiting and then essentially try to rotate out of it with all your athletes because that's one of the things the Lakers have been doing in this last 15-game stretch that's given them a huge edge is they're basically slotting... Instead of playing Austin and D'Lo together, they basically moved another point of attack defender yeah. into the lineup, and it's been consistently like... Reddish and Torian Prince, and then it's Max Christie and Jared Vanderbilt. You know, it's like a steady diet of athletes on the floor. And so when you have like a, a situation where let's say, let's say it's the um let's say it's Jared Vanderbilt on ball and it's LeBron on Miles Turner and they switch it, on the backside, you're gonna have Anthony Davis and a Cam Reddish or a Max Christie in rotation. Austin Reeves has been a really good help defender as of late. He's blowing up plays, jumping from the weak side. He's done a really good job. So like that's kind of the direction I see the game going. And again, I think if the Lakers are sharp, if they apply good ball pressure, if they uh uh if they, you know, rotate hard, get back in transition, I think they can keep them around that like 115 offensive rating area. That's kind of like the way they're going to have to play to win. And then moving over to the Lakers on offense, like it's going to be a couple of different things. The Pacers give up an offensive rebound on 34.2% of opponents misses, which is really bad. And now the Lakers have abandoned the offensive glass for the most part this season, But we saw in the Phoenix game in particular, when they know they have an advantage there, Mm -hmm. they look to be aggressive. And so I see it being one of those things where like maybe the Pacers have a lot of success offensively, but the Lakers get like 15 to 20 more shot attempts than they do. And that goes a long way. Mm -hmm. Um, I think also in a weird way, like and I know I'll just pitch it to you guys like this. Do you think LeBron can have a little bit more of a mental effect on Indy than Giannis Dame or Jason Tatum did? I hear that crazy to be a general young team with turn heel have been in high stake situations. Playing LeBron in a game matters to when really been in those games that is scary and i don't know if it's a huge factor but i do think it is a factor yes i consider that as well i think it's a big time fact i mean i don't know lebron would scare me out there on the floor i assume (laughs) it's the same for these guys like they they watched him growing up you know this is a really young pacers team like there has to be a i don't know that i think the aura around lebron has to come into play in this game i think I think it's it's something that could play a factor and it's something to keep an eye on early. And I think if the Pacers play very confidently throughout this game, it's yet another indicator of just how amazing Tyrese Halliburton is, mm-hmm. <laughs> which will be worth keeping an eye on. But again, I think I think that's the pathway for the Lakers. Bully ball, uh, l- lots of matchup attacking on the front line, win the possession battle. And then again, I know some people disagree with me on this, but I think when the Lakers give their best defensive effort, they are the best defense in the league. And so in my opinion, like this will be a great challenge. It's I'm so excited for this game tomorrow because 
not only is it LeBron versus Tyrese Halliburton, but it's two incredibly different styles. A team that mm-hmm. thrives on offense and and couldn't be couldn't care less about defense versus a team that thrives on defense and is a bad offense. But both teams are doing better on the other end as of late. Like the Pacers have been defending better, the Lakers have been scoring better. So like, there's all these like interesting trends. And I think I think LeBron, like again, like there's not a soul on that roster that can even hope to make LeBron moderately uncomfortable. Like a lot of that ball pressure stuff yeah. that that Aaron Neesmith did, LeBron's just gonna use against him and and just and, and pick him apart. And and obviously, like the big weakness of the Pacers defense is actually their help and recover. Like their their off ball guys get lost all the time, which is going to be a big problem with LeBron on the floor. They haven't faced a single team this week that's got that level of passer on the floor. And I think Mm -hmm. that's something to keep an eye on again. Think the Pacers can win. Think they flat out have a good chance, but I'm picking the Lakers now because of time, we're going to move on. I want to hit two quick topics before we get out of here. Zion Williamson, LeBron erased him from that game, basically just daring him to shoot, beating him to spots right outside the restricted area and falling over. And that doesn't seem like, I, what bothered me in particular is Zion actually has like a pretty solid floater mm-hmm. where like he'll like he was using it. Uh, he's used it throughout the season where like he'll make a hard ISO move and then he'll just kind of elevate from like six feet and just shoot that little pop shot over the top and he can make it. And I, I think, again, I think LeBron alpha dogged him in a lot of ways that affected his confidence. But I, so I do think last night isn't exactly the best characterization of, of who Zion is as a player. That said, like, Rim efficiency's down this year. Mm-hmm. Rim frequency's down from when he was good. The, he just hasn't quite been even as good as he was a year ago. And so from that standpoint, like, are we off the Zion bandwagon from the standpoint of him ever reaching truly great potential? Like, is he now essentially damaged goods in the sense that, like, as he gets older, the weight and the injuries are just going to make him less and less mobile, which is going to make him less and less impactful? Are we more or less seeing the ceiling of Zion right now? What do you guys think? I have been... An advocate, when you're looking at last year, the level he was at in 2021, that some people have just flat out undersold how monumentally great an offensive player Zion has been when he is on the floor. He has been the most imposing rim finisher from initiating from the perimeter, right? Excluding Shaq, because he's a <laughs> big, he dominates from the interior, that we have seen. He is... 6'6", 285 pounds, with one of the quickest first steps in the league, some of the elite bounce in the league, and then this overwhelming force, he is has just been such a marvel to watch. He has just walked in to 25, 27 a night on 65% true shooting. He's been so lethal out of different offensive actions, isolating, dudes can't check him one-on-one. In the post, he has such overwhelming physical advantages, even ball handling out of pick and roll. As a roller, like, Zion has been awesome when he's been on the floor, up to this season. I think it's been really disappointing what we've seen from him. I think this is the worst condition that we have seen him in. And I think that this is also probably the least confident, comfortable. That absolutely think that that was a factor in yesterday's game. He seemed rattled to me. I mean, he couldn't hit his free throws either. And he's been less aggressive this year. We actually just had this conversation with a guest on our mm-hmm. show. Shout out to Jokic Joestar. But Zion has normally been, I mean, a crazy efficient isolation player. This year, he's been below average efficiency there, and he just hasn't asserted himself offensively as much. His attempts are down. His scoring is down. His efficiency is down. 
His rebounding is down. I think he continues to be really underwhelming there. It's not something that he really commits to, but an athlete of his caliber should have more of an impact there. And then defensively, I think there was optimism with him as a prospect that, right, he could have enough lateral quickness. And I mean, he had some monster defensive stretches at Duke. He's never been able to turn into, in my opinion, even neutral. And I've been disappointed in what we've seen from him so far this year. I've been pretty disappointed by Zion too. And it's frustrating, man, because I think it's that level of disengagement that you talk about, Carson, that's so frustrating with Zion Williamson and kind of speaks to him as a a basketball player in his character, right? It's like the little things like that, the the defense, the rebounding. It's like Zion, does he want to be out there? Does he want to play basketball? It's like a, it's like the smart kid in school, right? Like the naturally gifted, really smart kid versus the dumb kid who needs to study and go get a tutor, right? Like me and Carson, right? You know, Carson didn't need yeah. to crack the book, but I had to read yeah. a lot. You know, I had to study, man. <laughs> Love this analogy. It's, I love it's this like, analogy. It's like if the More. really it's like if the really smart kid was disengaged, right? It's so easy for Zion. He's always had it. He didn't need to crack the book, right? He's got these such dominant physical advantages. He's a freaking bowling ball, man. When he goes to the paint, guys bounce off of him. He doesn't, it's a shoulder. He's like a he's like a trampoline. Like guys just literally jump off of him. It's insane. But I wonder with Zion, because of these overwhelming physical advantages, because of how easy the game comes to him, it's like, I, I don't know if one Zion tries that much. I don't know how much off court, if he really wants to improve his craft, it's, you know, it, it comes so easy to him because of these physical things that I don't know how much off court, if he really does put in the work. And that's the, that's the question to me because he has all the, the tools. He has all the skills. We've seen the flashes of it. I do want to cut Zion some slack in one area, and that's the fact that I don't think New Orleans is an optimized situation for him. I think that it's really tough because, you know, it's not optimized spacing-wise. He plays, you know, alongside a not great shooting big. You know, Valanciunas can space the floor, but he's not, you know, always out spacing it. So that's where I come down on it. I think it's partly on Zion because I don't know how much he cares about the game. I don't know how much he's trying to get better, how much he's trying to lose weight. But I also don't think this is a great situation for him. I do think more of it falls on Zion. And no, I probably wouldn't have him in that upper echelon of guys to build around because of all the concerns we've laid about. But the biggest issue to me is that I don't know if Zion loves the game, man. I don't know if Zion really wants to – does he want to win? Does he care? Does he want to get better? That's my biggest question mark with Zion and where I've mm -hmm. felt most unfulfilled with him this season. I can tell you that the Lakers don't think Jonas Valanciunas can shoot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I, I'm not giving up hope entirely, but I'm running out of hope. And it, it really is this simple for me. I, I'm worried that he might figure it out, so to speak, when he's 25 or 26, and then his body will have too much damage done to it and it'll mm -hmm. be too late. Mm -hmm. And that, that, that specifically to me is what scares me. And, and specifically what sucks about that is like, I was an idiot when I was young. Now I took better care of my body, but like, I did, like the point is, is like, it's not exactly unheard of for a dude to become more disciplined and to have his yeah. shit together better when he's older. And I just hope he can figure that out before his body fails him. That's kind of where I'm at with it. Now, uh, one last thing I want to hit before we get out of here. Last night, we had a uh, Bob Myers went on with the inside the NBA guys and he had a funny interaction with Charles Barkley where he's like, you know, congrats on getting off of that sinking ship. And he's like, oh, I got some friends over <laughs> there. And he's like, oh, they'll be with you soon. Uh, are the Warriors a sinking ship? Let's start with you, Carson. I think they have been slowly sinking since the title. 
because I think that to some extent that was magic in a bottle. That was a field that wasn't quite as strong as the ones that we've seen develop in the subsequent two years. And you had Jordan Poole playing at an unbelievable level. I was just reflecting on that with my friend yesterday, how insane it was that he was able to carry the offense for multiple games in that Denver series with Steph off the bench with unbelievable efficiency and shot making and great playmaking. And he, he demonstrated maturity from a guard that young that is so unreasonable to expect in a championship run, but he did it. And then he became the polar opposite of that within 18 months. So that was incredible. Wiggins playing at this level that he hasn't been able to reach before or since that was a special run. And I think that it was natural to expect that that was a team that given how they were aging, how they did capture lightning in a bottle with a couple of those key players was probably going to trend downwards. However, I am not all in on the Chuck like the Warriors are dead sort of thing. I know that he's been a big advocate for that. And I think that a lot of people have been. I remain cautiously optimistic about this team because I think that there's a couple areas in which they are clearly a lot better than last year when that was a team that made the second round of the playoffs and played a competitive series against the Lakers, which was a really good basketball team. I think this is the best bench unit of Steph's career. And I think that CP3 has been a good fit to that unit when he's been out there as a commanding presence. But I just grow more and more bullish about that group, even without him. I think that the energy that you get from Pods, from Moody, from Kaminga, so important. Shar just playing at a really high level. Uh, GP2, like there's just so many quality role players there. And historically, since KD left, the Warriors have struggled so much to win the non-Steph minutes. They were positive by a decent amount when Steph was on the floor last year. I think it was like plus 46 in the playoffs with him, minus 48 without him. So you can point at that and say, when Steph was off the floor, they couldn't put together a capable second unit. And maybe that was the single thing that sunk them. This year, I do see other concerns. I think that their core starting unit... And CP, especially when they try to close with CP. I just don't think that's tenable. He's not a good offensive fit alongside Steph. And they just can be too small, too slow, not athletic enough to seriously contend, especially in this monstrously huge Western Conference. So they do need, to me, Moody to play big minutes. I love Moses Moody. I love what he is doing out there. That is a big-time shooter who plays with great effort. He just makes winning basketball plays. Kaminga came up in a big way in that Portland game. I don't think he's as consistently a positive guy, but I think that athleticism alone can swing games. Pods is so mature offensively for his age, and he plays so hard. Like Those guys are legitimately valuable, and I do think they may need to be more willing to mix and match combinations when you're looking at closing. There are games where Clay is just a negative. And I'm not one of those people who thinks mm -hmm. Clay is washed because he had a terrible month, because he had a terrible month to start last year, and then he had some of the best months of his career. He is a tough shot taker, tough shot maker, and there is going to be variance with that. I don't really like him as an offensive number two because he's so limited athletically and as a playmaker. But I don't think that Clay has fallen off a cliff just because he had a really bad shooting month and maybe he took a few more bad shots than he even normally would. But he's just generally a guy who takes and makes a lot of contested jumpers. So there do need to be spots where he's not playing well. Wiggins has had so many rough games and those guys just shouldn't play closing minutes. But I do think those guys are going to find more of their normal level. You mentioned when you came on our show how brutal the schedule has been. The Warriors still haven't lost to a bad basketball team. The Clippers are very legitimately, arguably the worst team who they've lost to. That's a talented team. That's a team mm -hmm. that's playing better basketball as of late. If Wiggins and Clay can't find their normal level, 
then I think you start looking at making a move. And I think they probably should anyways, if they want to have like a real puncher's chance even to win the West. If it's a big uh, athletic wing, a guy with two-way impact like OG Ananobi, who we know they wanted to target last year, the asking price was just so crazy high. If it is a dynamic second shot creator like Zach Levine, who, yes, I have concerns about defensively and how does he fit into a new culture? How malleable will he be? But it's just a talent injection that I think is valuable to them. And maybe you don't have to move Clay because I think that that's going to be a tough sell maybe for Steph and Draymond. I don't know if they ever reasonably could break up that core. And even though I like CP's fit, I think that at that contract value, you can probably get a guy who is more impactful than like a good sixth man who reasonably you can't close with and the bench is playing well without him anyways. So I think this is a team that's going to get better. I think this is a team that has had catastrophic performance from a couple of their key players. And I think this is a team that's had a tough schedule. And uh, Draymond obviously missing time with injury and then the suspension. Everything has sort of been working against them. Like unbelievable blown games late. Uh, against the Kings and against the Clippers. And I think things are only going to go up from here because of that. I don't think they're broken. I absolutely think this is a team that can win a playoff series. I just think they need retooling. But I'm encouraged so much by the young guys in the second unit as a whole because that's a strength that this team just has not had in recent years. And Steph is still Steph. So as long as Steph is Steph with a better second unit and you know most of the key pieces still around, you cannot write off the Warriors like some people are doing right now. I agree with a lot of what you said, and the other area I'll hit it on, too, is I think the Warriors have to be better defensively. You know, in the regular season of their final run, they were the best defense in the NBA. In the playoffs, they were still a really good defense, and I know Draymond's missed some time. We need to see, along with Steph being great, along with the bench unit being better, I think that the defense has to get to an above-average level, and then I do think they need to make a move. What happens with the sinking ship? How do you get better? Well, you throw off some weight, you know, you get rid of some of the gold. And if that is CP, (laughs) if it is somebody else, you got to cut some weight and so the ship can get back up, you know, point blank. And so I think a move is required at the deadline. And Carson, you talk about giving them a puncher's chance. I'll remind you guys, Buster Douglas once knocked out Mike Tyson. You know what I mean? So it's, Mm. sometimes it's all you need. You know, you just need an opportunity. I do think to get that opportunity, to get that puncher's chance, uh, they do need to make a move at the deadline. And I think Probably shopping CP is the right move. They need an upgrade in offensive talent. They need they need that injection of uh, of offense. But I'd give them the Buster Douglas puncher's chance if they make that move at the deadline and if it is the right move. Yeah, I agree with both of you. I think writing them off is incredibly foolish considering they've had just about the worst possible set of circumstances you could have to start a season mm-hmm. with the with the uh, the schedule the. Like you lose on a crazy step back three from Paul George. You lose on a (laughs) wild cross body bank shot from Malik Monk on perfect defense from Andrew Wiggins. Mm -hmm. You obviously Draymond Green barely plays. Andrew Wiggins has played like crap until just uh, just just recently. It's been an incredibly unfortunate uh, sequence of events for you. And you're still within striking distance. And it really comes down to this for me. They have Jonathan Kaminga. And this specific challenge for this front office is going to be difficult for them to come to terms with. But to me, Moses Moody popping the way that he has in a consistent way that fits within their system mm-hmm. makes it such an easy decision. You package Jonathan Kaminga with Chris Paul. 
Yep. And you and you go after like to me, I'd be going after Pascal Siakam. I'd be going after uh like I, I like there's a bunch of guys, Pascal Siakam, Jeremy Grant, Lori Markin, and there's a bunch of different potential guys you could look at in this spot. Now, let me just put it this way with Pascal Siakam. If they were to make that deal, which by the way, if I was the Raptors, I would do that in a heartbeat. Mm-hmm. If I could get Jonathan Kaminga to pair with Scotty Barnes is more similar on the on the timeline. I don't know if they're going to get a better deal than that for Siakam on an expiring, especially when you're going to have to re-sign him. Genuinely, I don't know uh, that they could fi- do better. I think the Warriors have a chance to to actually enter into these bidding wars and have a, a chance to win one of them. But let's just say Siakam for the sake of this debate. Now I've got a Wiggins-Siakam-Draymond front line, mm-hmm. which is... Just absurd defensively, like yeah. outrageous defensively with switchability. Draymond's shooting the shit out of the ball this year. Mm-hmm. There's that. Um, Steph is still a definitive top. You know, he's in that. It, I would say that this season, be, the, some of the external circumstances have led him to look a little rickety in, as an athlete. But I think he's had a lot on his plate, and I think that when they get you know, kind of in a groove, I think he'll continue to look more or less like the Steph that we know. But I think he's definitively in that top six or seven players in the league still, right? And that's being conservative. So, like, if that's the case and and you can run out a lineup with Steph and Clay with Andrew and, let's say, Siakam and Draymond, and you have Pazemski, you have Gary Payton, you have Moses Moody, you have Trace Jackson, Davis, Dario Sarge, they've got, they've got depth there. And and with that being the case, like I think it would just be foolish to write them off. And so again, yeah. like it, you, it, like it's one thing when you're looking at a team like uh, like Phoenix, and it's like, man, they really need to get a wing defender in there at some point. And it's like they really just don't have the means with which to do it. Mm-hmm. Like I was talking with Brendan Clean yesterday, and it's like maybe you trade you to want Nabi for some other athlete who's on a veteran minimum somewhere when a team mm-hmm. needs shooting and you're just like, Hey, we'll take the athlete. You take the shooter, you know, like that yeah. kind of thing. But like, they just don't really have the the means. The Warriors have the means. Mm-hmm. They've got a tradable salary that can fit a big slot that they don't really need in Chris Paul. And they've got a young player in Jonathan Kaminga who is definitely sought after league wide, but that is a terrible fit in their system because he doesn't really fit in the yeah. motion five out offense. And so, Honestly, I think like I think like writing them off is foolish. The, with the play-in tournament, they could literally drop ten straight games and still have a chance to make the playoffs. Like it just it doesn't make any sense for me to write them off. And I think honestly, like what happens a lot of times in media is for the sake of the talking point, people try to jump ahead of a ship. And mm-hmm. I kind of feel this way with like the best player in the league thing. Like it's always like everyone's like, "Oh, this guy's the best player in the league," and it's like. Can we wait for him to get the trophy first? <laughs> you know, like, but it's because it's a talking point. I think it's mm-hmm. like, oh, the Warriors are are falling apart, and it's like they've had a rough stretch, and there's a whole yeah. lot of basketball left to play. Do you guys have anything else you want to add before we get out of here for the day? Well, I will just quickly say I really do like the Siakam proposition. I think that that significantly diminishes Kavon Looney's role, but I don't know that that's the worst thing. And yeah, then you're athletic in the front court. You're adding some offensive skill. I think that's a big win. I know some Warriors fans really want Markinen. I don't know what package you put together that makes the Utah Jazz move off of their shining star that is Laurie Markinen right now. That would be really tough. But I think the front court makes the most sense. And if you can add real offensive skill there too, that's a big win because they just need to be bigger and more athletic ultimately for this Western Conference. Logan? 
I'd say get Otto Porter Jr. back in the deal for yes. the Occam, and then we're set. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, okay, I have one last quick one before we get out of here. If you had to pick a team that's going to get Laurie Markin in at this point, who would you say? I have two teams that that I that scream to me right away: the Pacers and the Thunder. Oh my gosh, him in Indiana—that would be offensive heaven. Mm-hmm. And both teams need a four-man. Like yeah. Carson and I, Carson and I are both firmly on team Tyrese Halliburton is making Obi Toppin look good. Yeah, oh, 100%. <laughs> and Lori, man, I think that he might be like the most undervalued star talent by the just like, you know, average NBA fan who why would they watch the Jazz? Like he is an an incredible offensive player and he does have size and he's good enough defensively. Yeah, that would be super fun. I just if I were the Jazz, it would. I understand that he's like not perfectly aligned with their timeline because he's 26 and they're really early in a rebuild. But he's so so good and he's on a good value contract. It would take a lot to get me to move him. But Indiana would be so fun. Dude, well, I was thinking. The, the, go ahead, Logan. I'm sorry. I was thinking the same about the Thunder. I mean, that makes both of those teams almost legit contenders, right? Yeah. Scratch the both almost, teams. buddy. Both teams. Yeah. They're both both are contenders with, with Shea and all like the, the Thunder are more talented. And then Indy has like a guy who I think is a top tier superstar. Like I, I would say that Halliburton is he's he's every bit as good as Shea. Maybe maybe yeah, I was going to ask. Mm-hmm. I was going <laughs> to ask. I mean, he's certainly a better offensive player. I think I lean Shea because of the difference in two way impact. We'll see how Halley looks in a real playoff environment, but he's a better offensive player. Mm hmm. But I, th- I think in general, like just I think I think Markinen is a better fit timeline wise and basketball wise with both of those teams than mm-hmm. some of these veteran teams that are that they're looking at with the Jazz. And this is the last thing I'll say, and we'll get out of here. But like the one thing with the Jazz that I that always bothers me is like Lori's really good, but you know what he's not? He's not a franchise cornerstone. Yeah, and so true. and so w- I just don't understand. Like it's 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 like uh, there's to me if you don't have that guy the guy that's your franchise cornerstone, then every move you should be making should be geared towards getting that guy. And then once you have that guy, then you start to kind of analyze what your strengths and weaknesses are around that and kind of cater to it. And so like, Mm -hmm. for me, if I'm the jazz, I'm like, I'd be I like if if Sam Presti calls, I'd be like, all right, six first round picks. You know, <laughs> well, yeah. you know like, like yeah. we'll take we'll take Josh Giddy, we'll take you know Kason Wallace, well, you know, like you piece together something crazy, and 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 then you know, like you know, if you're Sam Presti, you're sitting there, and you're like, if I say yes to this, I get to I get to run out of lineup with Shea, Dort, yeah. Jalen Williams, Laurie Markinen, and Chet Holmgren, mm. and like, holy shit, man, like you yeah. know, like it could be really good. So yeah. I I think I I'll be curious to see what happens. But hey, thank you guys so much for giving me an hour of your time, giving our audience an hour of your time. Everybody, please go over to the Nerd Sesh YouTube channel right after you watch this and hit that subscribe button for me. Help these guys get their channel started. I think they make amazing content. And it's always a challenge trying to, when your content moves from one platform to another, to get everybody to see where it's at. Um, we're going to be having the Nerd Sesh guys on about every other week from now on, just because I have so much fun talking basketball with them. Thank you guys so much. Thank you to all the listeners. I will see all of you guys tomorrow for the in-season tournament championship.
the volume. You've probably heard a lot about electrified vehicles lately. Well, Toyota has electrified options for every lifestyle. We've got hybrids, no plug needed. But we also have plug-in hybrids, if that's your thing. You can even go 100% electric in the Toyota BZ4X. With so many options for reducing carbon emissions, Toyota is electrified, diversified. Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero. Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel battery tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now you can save $50 on select battery tool sets. Real steel. Offer valid on select AK system sets through June 16, 2024. See participating retailer for details. Hey guys, back at the playground again, huh? Yep. You know what this playground could use? A wine country. Heck yeah, and some waves. So we could go surfing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I love that. A redwood forest would be cool. I'm in. Ah, ski slopes. Let's do it. Um, tenor girl go shopping. Yeah. Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com.